Psalm 146. Psalm 146. The topic, don't put your trust in princes who are mere men that will die. The title of our message, The Princes Died. All right. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll accept that. One chuckle ministers to me. Father, we do thank you this morning that you've brought us together. Lord, to say that we live in turbulent times would be an understatement. And yet at the same time, Lord, uh, when have there not been turbulent times for the church? We pray that your spirit, Lord, would abound in this place. That he would indeed teach us many things this morning about your character and nature and great love for us. We'd have a sense of the manifest presence of Jesus uh, walking, as he said, amidst the uh, candlesticks. That the word of God would be uh, rich and full to our hearing and to our hearts. Guide us, we pray, as we go through this marvelous text. Make it alive to us today, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Those who agreed said, amen. <clears throat> when Nick Fury wanted to know how Loki used the Tesseract to, as he said, turn two of the sharpest men I know into his personal flying monkeys, Captain America perked up. Having been frozen for 70 years, Cap, that's what we call him, was understandably ignorant of most of the pop culture references being made by his fellow Avengers. When Fury mentioned flying monkeys, Thor said, monkeys, I do not understand. An excited Captain America blurted out, I do. I understood that reference. In another of the films, we see the page of a notebook on which Steve Rogers keeps a to-do list of pop culture he needs to get caught up on. Things like disco and both Star Trek and Star Wars. I'm guessing almost everyone here gets the flying monkeys as a reference to Wizard of Oz. That's quite an achievement for a book published in 1900 and made into a feature film way back in 1939. Here are a few more references from Oz still in common use today. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And of course, there's no place like home. The we're not in Kansas anymore line is so iconic that it was number four on a list of the top 100 movie quotes of all time compiled by the American Film Institute in 2005. One critic noted the list of television series that haven't borrowed the line might be shorter than the list of those who have. When you use an iconic pop culture reference, everyone familiar with it gets it and has the same mindset. Something like that is going on in Psalm 146. To really get Psalm 146, we need to remember something about Second Temple Hebrew culture. It's this. The Old Testament prophets had more to say about the coming of the kingdom of God on earth than anything else. Psalm 146 describes, among other things, a time during which there will be no poverty and no physical handicaps such as blindness. These are iconic images. A Jew would get these as referring to conditions that would prevail on earth in the future kingdom when the Messiah was on the earth. 
We need to read Psalm 146 looking ahead to the kingdom. Only then will it comfort us in the present rather than confuse us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the coming kingdom provokes praise. And number two, the coming kingdom provides perspective. Let's look at praise in verses one and two. Pop culture references only work when we share a common background. I find that out a lot when I share a sermon title or a reference in the study that no one gets. Pam tells me, she goes, no one is going to get that. And I look at her and I say things like, who doesn't know all the obscure Deep Purple songs? This is the perfect title. Now, before we get to iconic kingdom images, the psalmist, and we don't know who it is, sets the scene. It's praise, verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The five psalms that conclude this great hymn book are known as the Hallelujah Psalms. That's because they begin with praise the Lord and end with praise the Lord, which is, of course, hallelujah. Hallel means praise or tell someone they are, someone they are very great. The you there means all of you. And Yah, most Bibles translate as Lord with four capital letters, meaning Jehovah or Yahweh. The psalmist mentions the soul. He meant to elevate our thinking to living for eternity. Our bodies will die and they'll corrupt in the grave or worse. But with the Lord, there is nothing to fear. And we know that our soul will go on. In verse two, the psalmist says he will praise the Lord both while I live and while I have my being. While I live sounds like his life on the earth. While I have my being sounds like after life on the earth ends on into eternity. Now and forever he would praise the Lord. Praise would permeate his life. I've noticed that at either end of the spiritual spectrum, praise can cease. In times of blessing, we tend to drift from the Lord because we don't sense our need for him like we do when we're not being blessed. Israel was always at its most vulnerable in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, when they were prospering because then they became apathetic and uh, sleepy spiritually, as it were. They started looking at the things of the world and going after the idols and the gods of the other cultures, and God would have to come in and discipline them. And so times of blessing in our life are dangerous times. They're great. I'd rather be blessed than not. Don't get me wrong. But they're dangerous, and, and all the more you need to be plugged in to the spiritual disciplines of life. Times of buffeting, we find it hard to praise the Lord since we kind of blame him for it. Uh, you know, nobody likes suffering. Uh, we, the, the apostle said, don't consider it a strange thing when trials come, because why? We do consider it a strange thing. We still think that God is mad at us or upset with us or, or punishing us. Uh, we forget that we live in a fallen world where uh, believers suffer or non-believers suffer. Uh, but we can tend to be uh, angry with God, and that is a praise killer. It's pretty hard to praise the Lord for uh, in all things when you're uh, secretly thinking that he's not being very nice to you. I like it that we have a couple of praise choruses we sing that really kind of get this perspective. We sing, Blessed Be Your Name. You know that song, Every Blessing You Pour Out, I'll Turn Back to Praise. And when the darkness closes in, I still will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So either way, blessing or buffeting, 
I'll praise the Lord. Lately, we've been singing that song, Trust in You. When you don't move the mountains, I need you to move and don't part the waters I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. Hallelujah means all of me telling the Lord he is very great and it implies that I do it all the time. Ever play charades? Are you good at charades? I think I'm good at charades, but I'm really not. I can never remember any of the signals. I have to ask what the signals are. I know movie. This is something on the nose, right? Yeah, we're not gonna do that right now. But anyway, <laughs> think of your daily life, your language, and even your body language as a kind of worthy charade in which people can easily guess that you are a believer whose life is dedicated to all the time praising the Lord. Sound on the nose, right? Uh, that guy's a believer. And believe me, you can tell sometimes. Some people are just so filled with joy that uh, you, you're drawn to them. There's a spiritual thing. But beyond that, there's our language and there are many other things that we can do uh, in order to uh, give the impression and the understanding to people that we praise the Lord. Now, number two, the coming kingdom provides perspective. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, it was their theme song. They sound like a stuck record saying over and over that the king is coming, the kingdom is coming, and great blessings will be on this earth. Anybody not know what a record is since we're in this iconic phase? <laughs> hey, you know, in our cafe, we've got all those LPs up on the wall. A lot of people come in and say, what are those? They're uh, record albums. What? Crazy. Vinyl, the only way to listen to music. Well, that's stupid. I don't... <laughs> That was a uh, big vinyl paid me to say that, but anyway. So. <laughs> the prophets made much of the coming king and kingdom. John the Baptist announced that the king was on scene. It was Jesus. And then Jesus went around offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel. The disciples expected Jesus to establish the kingdom. It was a constant theme in their thinking. They argued about it. They questioned him about it. Even right up until the time he ascended into heaven, they were saying, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom? I don't think we understand how important, how ingrained, how much the kingdom meant to the nation of Israel. When John and Jesus talked about the kingdom, the Jews knew exactly what they meant with little explanation. This wasn't a new concept at all. The kingdom isn't an allegory for something else. We mean a literal reign of Jesus Christ over the current earth sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. Looking back, we acknowledge that the prophecies of the Bible that have been fulfilled were done so literally. Christmas season, all of the prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming, not an allegory in them. All of them literal, all of them fulfilled. Looking forward, we must acknowledge that the prophecies of the Bible that have yet to be fulfilled will also be done so literally. There are something like eight times as many prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus than there are his first. Why would they not also be literal? And yet many theologians balk on this and they say, no, no, uh, the prophecies there are meant to be allegories. They're symbolic of different things. These are not things that are going to happen. Why would prophecies of the future suddenly be allegories? They are not. They're real, they're literal, they're future. 
Now, we more commonly call the kingdom the millennial kingdom or the millennium. Kingdom of heaven on earth, millennium, the millennial kingdom. Those are all uh, talking about the same thing. In the Revelation, in chapter 20, we're told no less than six times the kingdom will last 1,000 years. In Latin, 1,000 is millennium, millennium, 1,000 years. And so that's why we call it the millennium. For the remainder of the psalm, the psalmist assumes a future perspective as he lives in the present. And that's always a good thing to do, to look at your present circumstances from what's uh, sure to happen in the future. Uh, Or should we say it's the palmist who does this? (laughs) Are you familiar with, uh, looks like our president to be Joe Biden. The other day, he, uh, there's a quote on YouTube. He's somewhere, I forget where he is, but he wants to quote from the palms. And uh, he, ta- he talks about the palmist. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is hilarious. I'd make fun of anybody who did that. I'm not biased in any way, but no, I'm serious. I mean, that just, it's just cute. Somebody should take him aside and wake him up. Verse three, do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Princes would be anyone in a position of authority, princes, kings, potentates, pharaohs, etc. Son of man indicates that the princes being referred to are merely men. This doesn't mean leaders are to be disregarded as unimportant, Newsom. Uh, (laughs) I can't get political. However, we're supposed to be meeting outdoors next week, right? Uh, because midnight tonight, uh, we go into a deep purple phase again. And so, <laughs> what I'm calling deep purple, you get that, that callback? Yeah. I got it. I got a million of them. But uh, so, so, we'll be meeting outside next week. I'll be in here filming. And the, the doors will be open if you want to come in and warm yourself a little bit during the service. So, that's how we're going to handle that. All right, Uh, don't, (laughs) this is a reminder to the Jews to not lose sight of the future king of kings. For a Jew, it meant keeping messianic hope alive. During their entire history in the Old Testament from Abraham forward, they were to keep this messianic hope alive. Our hope as Christians is different. The Jews rejected Jesus and therefore they rejected his offer to right then and there establish the kingdom. Jesus ascended into heaven, promising he would return and establish the kingdom, but there was going to be a period of time in between those two comings. That time between the ascension and the second coming, our time right now is the church age. We have our own iconic images, such as in the world you will have tribulation and our light affliction is but for a moment. A major characteristic of the church age is our being weak in order to show God's strength. And so when I look at this text, see, this becomes important now. I can't really look at Psalm 146 and say, God, why am I suffering when you said there wouldn't be any disabilities? Why is there cancer? Why is there Parkinson's disease? Why is there asthma for that matter? Or hay fever? When you clearly said this about yourself. But now we know, we say, well, those are conditions that are going to prevail in the kingdom. 
And the Jew knew that too. He knew that those weren't conditions that were gonna prevail on earth until the Messiah came. And that was what was so powerful about Jesus coming, right? Jesus did all these things when he came. There was no blindness, there was no lameness, there was no muteness, there was no illness when Jesus was around. There were no demons possessing people. There was nothing except uh, the purity of God's love for human beings. He said, this is the kingdom and I offer it to you now. And the Jews said, nah, we'll pass. And the Lord said, well, for now, I'll, 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 you know, you can, but you can't pass indefinitely because I promised it's coming. So I'm gonna ascend to heaven and we'll do something else right now. We'll call out a people called the church. It'll be a different age where instead of me on the earth, I'll be in heaven giving out all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and they will show the strength of God in their weakness. And so now I, when I read these scriptures and understand their context, I'm encouraged. Uh, I'm right where I need to be in God's plan. And like the Jew, I know that when Jesus is on the earth ruling, all of these afflictions will be gone. No pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no tears, all of that on into eternity. Our hope is to be resurrected or raptured, and that event is imminent. Any moment during this age, we may find that we are not in Kansas anymore. I plan on saying that on my way up, so... <laughs> It won't be funny then either, but uh, <laughs> I find it interesting that one of the criticisms leveled against the rapture is that we put too much value on future hope. Did you know that secular uh, psychologists and psychiatrists proclaim that future hope is beneficial to your health? And they've studied this. Here's a quote, a greater sense of hope was associated with better physical health and health behavior outcomes, reduced risk of all cause mortality, Fewer number of chronic conditions, lower risk of cancer, fewer sleep problems, higher psychological well-being, increased positive effect, like satisf life satisfaction and purpose in life, lower psychological distress, and better social well-being. And so the hope that a worldly person has encourages their health and makes them live a better life. As far as I can tell, the greatest hope that people have is that they'll live to a ripe old age without any ailments. Uh, they'll be able to retire young and travel or do whatever they want and that they and their spouse will die together so that nobody's unhappy. And that'd be great, but what kind of hope is that? When you talk to them, what about the afterlife? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. It'll all work out. Yeah, no, not, not so much. Not unless you think about it. And so we have the greatest, if hope is important, who has the better hope? My hope's better than your hope if I'm a Christian and you're not. Our hope is just better. You might want to meditate. My, my word, uh, spell check says mediate. I can't stand that. Meditate on the words. Do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help, especially after an election, right? It... it it's not that it doesn't matter, but you don't want to put your trust there. Let the Holy Spirit use these words to bring you peace in these weird, turbulent times. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. Leaders have their plans. Some of them are good and beneficial, or at least they were intended to be. FDR had the New Deal. JFK had the New Frontier. LBJ had the Great Society. All of them meant for good. Hitler had the final solution. That was a plan. 
a hideous satanic plan, all those leaders have perished and their plans have perished with them. MAGA seems on the brink of perishing, giving way to build back better. It too will perish. The Lord's plan cannot fail. By his providence, it will play out just as prophesied from Genesis through the revelation. He came, he is coming. Verse five, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Jacob is the Jews or the nation of Israel. It's like shorthand for that. The story God tells throughout the Bible centers around the nation he established through Abraham from which the Messiah would come to save and bless the world. The Messiah would be a God-man, the God-man, fully God and fully human, so he had to come through the line of a, a, a human being, and he came through Abraham's line to the nation of Israel, but he would bless the entire world, not just the Jews. God, the Almighty God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the only one who can save and sanctify and glorify you, he must become your God, the Lord, your God. Verse six, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Keeps truth forever can be translated is faithful forever. God created the universe. He put man in a beautiful garden paradise. Adam and Eve ruined it, but God promised immediately to fix it. He has revealed how he will do that in the Bible. He's been faithful up to now. He will be faithful to the end. Everything the Lord said he will do, he will do. The second coming of Jesus ends the seven-year great tribulation. At his coming, there will be human survivors on the earth. A judgment will take place. The souls of the surviving non-believers will be consigned to Hades to await future judgment. Believers will remain on the earth in their human bodies to live in and populate the kingdom. The images and topics in verses seven, eight, and nine would be understood as referring to the kingdom. The things listed would indicate that the king was on the earth. And again, no Israelite would confuse them for conditions that could exist unless and until the Messiah was present, physically present. Once we recognize these references are from the future kingdom, we won't be confused about why there are still blind people or why there is poverty. We need to quit saying, why doesn't God heal as much as he used to? Well, he only really healed all the time when? When Jesus was on the earth offering the kingdom. And he will do it again when Jesus is on the earth in the kingdom. Before that, in the middle of that, we live in a fallen world, uh, but we're not defeated. We're more than conquerors through Christ who saved us. The current church age is a horse of a different color. Verse seven, who, execu thank you. who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. Justice is a characteristic of the millennium. Isaiah said of it, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Poverty will be abolished. Jeremiah said, therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. Captives will be released. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse eight, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah also said, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. We take from that that there will be no disabilities at all. All will be healed. Doing what is right permeates global society during the millennium. John Wolverd summarized this by saying, taken as a whole, the social and economic conditions of the millennium indicate a golden age in which the dreams of social reformers throughout the centuries will be realized, not through human effort, but by the immediate presence and power of God and the righteous government of Jesus Christ. Now, there is something here for your devotional life. If you're thinking, well, why even read this if, if we're not in that kingdom yet? Well, obviously, it's exciting. That's the kingdom we're going to be in. That's, you know, it's like when you take your kids for the first time for, to Disneyland, when you used to be able to do that, when there was a Disneyland, RIP, and, and maybe you'd tell them about it, and, and you know, uh, yeah, instead of Disneyland, it's going to be Disneyland, RIP. You can drive by and say, they used to have fun over there, but no more. Actually, you'd be in a self-driving car with... Uh, on your way to Costco, which is the only place you can buy anything, and then you'll get to the door and they'll say, sorry, you're declined because you went to church at Calvary Hanford. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, it's, it's like anticipation. Don't you have, you know, you, some of you, okay, you don't like Disneyland, that's fine. Hawaii, I hate to even say it. I just, I don't know what it is about Hawaii that I don't like, but it's everything. And, uh, <laughs> But you have a sense of anticipation when you're going on vacation. You buy clothes and you, you make plans and all of this stuff. This is our kingdom. This is what, it's the precursor to the future uh, uh, eternity. And so it's exciting uh, by itself. But there's also something here for our devotional life. Alexander McLaren wrote, all these classes of afflicted persons are meant to be regarded literally but all may also have a wider meaning and be intended to hint at spiritual bondness, spiritual blindness, things like that. So we learn from this that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He deals with people differently, Old Testament, New Testament, church age, that kind of a thing, future millennium, on into the future. But God is the same. In every dispensation, at any time, he doesn't like for people to be blind. He would rather heal them of their blindness. And if it's a time when he's not doing a lot of physical healing, he wants to heal them of their spiritual blindness. And so there's always a lot for us to glean from this. In the millennium, God will open blind eyes physically. We extrapolate from his future characteristic that he heals spiritual blindness. And so we preach the gospel and pray that God would open blind eyes. Next, the palmist said, but the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. If it's the kingdom, where do the wicked come from? Think of all the people who will be born to tribulation survivors over a thousand years. I tried to do some math, because you have to understand I didn't get past geometry, uh, but uh, I finally found a chart where it, it talked about uh, the population of the tribulation or the millennial earth based on some metric, and as it would double every 10 years, and it got to a number that was this long. 
that I couldn't, I was gonna write it down, but I thought, I don't know, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, I can recognize a million or a trillion or a gazillion or a quadrillion, which I'm making that up, but it's a number, it's like 58 points long, and I thought, man, you know, so a lot of people could be born in perfect health conditions for over a thousand years, right? A lot of people, especially no hunger, the world's gonna somehow, this same earth that we can't figure out is gonna produce everything that we need for multiplied quadrillions of people, right? Is there such a thing as a quadrillion? I think there should be if there isn't. <laughs> there is now. And so there's gonna be a ton of people, but multitudes of those people are going to reject Jesus as their savior. The noive of those people, right? It's incredible. Nevertheless, we read this in Revelation. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Perfect conditions on the earth. Perfect Utopia, as it were. Jesus Christ in person on the earth, ruling and reigning. Christians from the church age in our glorified bodies, helping the Lord rule and reign. Nobody's sick. Everybody has food to, uh, in abundance. And at the end of it, you find that there are multitudes of people as the sand of the seashore who have rejected Jesus Christ's salvation because they still want to go their own way. To me, this solves the nature-nurture debate. You know, people argue about, well, is it how you're born or is it how, what you experience? Not that what you experience isn't important, but you're born with a sin nature. You're born dead in trespasses and sins, and the millennium will bear that out. There'll be plenty of opportunity to receive Christ because he's on the earth, and yet people will uh, go along with his reign, but as soon as there's someone else to follow, as soon as, as, soon as Satan is let out of prison, they follow him to their detriment. Verse 10, the Lord shall reign forever. You are God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Back to the present, but with a kingdom perspective, the coming reign of the God of Jacob, the God of Zion, is assured, not just for a thousand years, but to infinity and beyond. After the millennium comes eternity. The apostle John wrote, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Jesus promised you, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
to which we with many hallelujahs respond, there's no place like home.